when someone says, well, what do you do, Dave? What, you know, what's, what's your job now? That's the problem. I don't know. I mean, (laughs) I'm like, I'm doing a lot of different things. Let's run down some of them. Okay. Um, I write for Esquire. Mm -hmm. Um, I wrote a book. I would like to write another one. Um, I've co-written a, uh, a, um, a script that is potentially, well, I don't know. There's that. There's the TV writing element uh-huh. of it uh, without getting uh, super specific. Um, I host um, three podcasts. Um, I'm on air at Sirius XM. Um, but I'm, I'm a little bit all over the place. It's the hilarious world of depression. I'm John Moe. I was really excited to talk to Dave Holmes when I was in Los Angeles not long ago. That's where Dave lives with his partner of many years, the musician Ben Wise. I love Dave's writing, including his recent memoir, Party of One. And I remember his tenure as a VJ on MTV, where he was this regular guy, smart aleck fella that I could really relate to. Hey, folks, welcome back to 120 Minutes. I'm Dave Holmes. I'm joined now by Joe Strummer. Welcome. How do you do, Dave? Such an honor to have you here. truly is. You might have seen Dave acting on Reno 911. Someone to hold you too close up here with me, James. He hosts the podcast Homophilia. He writes for Esquire and does videos there. This week, we tip our hat to Billy McFarland the organizer of last weekend's dystopian fire festival. Now, you've heard right as we were about to turn the mics on, our interview about depression became about something else as well. And Dave, often I'll start an interview talking about where did you grow up? Tell me uh-huh. about your childhood. But now I want to find out about what's been happening in the last month cuz okay. just before we started you said I've had a really interesting month. I have. What's I have. going on? Well, I made the decision a few weeks back, a few months back, to get to the bottom of my uh, attention issues uh, or lack, you know, lack of attention issues. I um, suspected for a long time that uh, ADHD might be uh, a problem for me, but I never, uh, never really explored it. I made the decision uh, a few months back to talk to a uh, a psychologist who specializes in this kind of thing and get the full battery of tests. Mm-hmm. Go in, get the, the thing where you build shapes out of cubes. And oh, wow, the whole thing. The whole thing. Yeah. And the, there's, you know, like personality inventory questions, you know. There's uh, IQ testing. There's there's all kinds of stuff that goes into creating a psychological profile. And I found out that I do, in fact, have so much of a problem with really? ADHD. Yes. The National Institutes of Health says ADHD is a disorder that makes it difficult for a person to pay attention and control impulsive behaviors. He or she may also be restless and almost constantly active. If you're wondering what the difference is between ADD, attention deficit disorder, and ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, there isn't one. ADHD became the preferred term in 2013 because it's more descriptive. For Dave, the diagnosis is new. The condition isn't. 
I've always been somebody who it's very difficult to get me to sit down and do things. I'm definitely a daydreamer. I definitely, you know, the the, the old thing of he doesn't apply himself came up over right. and over and over again. You know, when you grow up, in, you know, in Catholic schools, what you hear typically is well, just don't be like that. Mm-hmm. You know, not only from the teachers, but from but from your parents. It's just like he's he doesn't pay attention. We'll pay attention. Yeah. You know, he's it's difficult to get him to focus. We'll focus. Why did it take so long to finally go get that checked out? Um, there's always something else to do. You were distracted. I was maybe distracted. Okay. When something is called a disorder, uh-huh. it means that it's risen to the level of interfering with uh, the the way you'd like to be living your life or, right. or the the normal functions that that let you know, that the normies can do yes. without effort. Yeah. Where was the disorder that... Well, uh, here's the thing. It it actually probably helped me in some ways hmm. because I do do a lot of things. So if my attention is all over the place, that's actually not the worst thing for a guy like me or it hasn't been the worst thing for a guy like me traditionally because cause I, you know, because I do stuff on camera and then I write some stuff and the stuff I write are little bits and pieces that go here and there and, and I'm on the radio and I do this and I do that. And, and it's good. That's good. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm able to do a lot of things. I've taught myself how to do a lot of things. So having attention that is scattered all over the place is not the worst thing. Where... I noticed that it was starting to become a problem. I don't, this is, I don't want to sound like self-pitying, but I almost I'm I'm running out of chances to to reinvent. Uh huh. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. When MTV ended, I moved here and I got back into comedy because I I got out here and nobody would see me and I was like, well, I'll, I'll you know, I'll push myself in the comedy direction and that worked and work came from that. And then when that began to sort of peter out, I was like, well, I love to write. I'm going to try to make a living writing. And that mm-hmm. worked out. And if the bottom drops out of that, I'm a 48-year-old guy. So in a couple of years, I'm going to be 50. And it's and it's and nobody wants to see the 50-year-old jack-of-all-trades <laughs> for the job. You <laughs> yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I'll be able to, to keep my nose above water, maybe. But I would like, as I get older, to, to do more than that. So to do more than that, I have to work. I have to kind of pick a lane and do it. And, and I've found that to be very difficult. Two things might be in play here. Thing one, Dave deals with issues of ADHD, depression, anxiety, and he's telling himself that what he's currently doing with all these jobs is no good. Thing two, that's just how the entertainment industry works. Unless you're a megastar, you're always hustling. You host TV shows, act, write, do stand-up, anything. Dave's mind moves from one topic to another, one job to another, but it does so very fast. I also found out that I'm that like I'm my processing speed is is quite high, mm. um, which makes sense. And I yeah. and I I knew a little bit about that from when I was a kid. I knew that um, you know that I tested well and that you know all I, I knew in vague ways that you know on paper I I had high you know. Whatever. And growing up feeling um, feeling weird, mm-hmm. um, feeling not sufficiently male, and, like, just trying to be normal, mm-hmm. like, trying to be perceived as normal, um, made me good at what I do. Like, being young and knowing that I'm weird and going into a situation where, you know, where I want to be accepted— it's 
what do I do? How do I hold myself? Who am I talking to? What right. does he want from me? What are his needs? How do I meet them? I'm going to say this thing. How is that landing? Do I push more in this direction? Do I push more in that direction? Like my brain's like this supercomputer that is just trying to make, you know, just avoid trouble. Right. Where other people are just walking into a room. Right. You're doing all those things. I'm doing all kinds of calculations. And that eventually made me, I think, good at be at doing what I do mm-hmm. um, because you have to, you know, that is, I mean, I'm gassing myself up, but that is kind of what charm is, <laughs> you know what yeah, I mean, yeah. is like sort of anticipating somebody's need and trying to meet it. Right. And so like the role of the TV hosts or the comedy writer or whatever is to put people on some level at ease and make them laugh and, you know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, having like an out of control runaway train brain uh and also feeling weird actually sort of helped me out well i think it's why it's why people get knocked for oh you know they're they're laying around in bed and they're you know they seem tired all the time and i always think they're working so much harder than everybody else so you know just to get through the freaking day so hard yeah yeah it's I didn't have the I mean nobody does. I didn't have the wisdom when I was younger to understand what was going on. Um but I was tired all the time. Like getting out into the world, which I loved. I'm a social person and everything, but particularly when I was younger and 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 this kind of thought was more at the front of my brain. I a couple hours out in the world would be like running a marathon. You yeah. know, I'd go home and just be like pooped. Looking at what happened when you were a kid doesn't always draw a clear path to your mental health today, but it can be instructive. Dave Holmes grew up in St. Louis, traditional Catholic home where he was expected to be a regular guy, a dude, a bro. Two older brothers who fit that definition right. effortlessly right. Well, and extremely well. Your older brother's names, I can't remember. From uh, Dan and Steve. Dan and Steve. I remember just reading that thinking, Dan, Steve, and Dave. Yeah. That's like, yep. that's, yep. you know, of course you lived in Missouri. That's exactly oh, sure. where that should happen. It is, uh, yeah, as normal as it gets. Um, except you were secretly gay. Secretly gay, for sure, but loudly not typically male. Yeah. Um, very obviously not typically male. Like, I just did not take to the boy stuff. You weren't into the sports and the wrestling? Was not into the sports and the wrestling. And, and, and my dad was, just kind of took it, just took it. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, my mother. Meaning like he accepted you? Yeah, I mean, I didn't, I I didn't feel a whole lot of resistance coming from him. Okay. Uh, which I'm lucky in that respect. And, and neither one was a monster, but, but I, I do remember at any Anytime sports were happening, my mother would be like, well, this guy, the guy with the ball there is trying to get it down to the end. <laughs> but those other guys don't want him to. They're going to try to stop him. And like just getting like I think she thought I just didn't understand it. And that's why I didn't like it. Waiting for it to click in. Yes. Yeah. And 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 finally, I remember being like, I, I, I know, I know, I know they're trying to score a touch. Like, I get it. I get it. Mm. I just it's just not for me. And, uh, and I remember her saying, well, this is what boys talk about. And I just want you to be able to talk to boys. Mm. And, and I thought, God, how sad. <laughs> <laughs> there was a, a really touching moment in, in your book, in Party of One, uh, where you talk about a friend you had when you were a kid. Maybe you weren't close, but you wanted to have him over. Uh-huh. Um, oh, yeah. I, I had gone to just sort of our parish grammar school for first grade in St. Louis. But I read, I had read very early. And so it became clear that I would have to go to a different school that 
could kind of accommodate me. And uh, and so I left after first grade. And there was a boy in my class who I wasn't super tight with, but who I just was drawn to him. It was, I mean, in retrospect, a crush, right? And uh, and so at the end of the school year, when I when it became clear I wasn't going to be going back to school with him, I said, "What well, we should have, uh, we'll call him Kenny. We should have Kenny over. And my mom said, I, I didn't know that you and Kenny were friends. I said, well, we're not. I just think he's cute and I want to have him over. And and I just remember everything. I remember the feeling of just everything stopping because the whole family was there. We were having breakfast and it was, I just felt like, oh, this that was not the thing to say. And uh, and I remember my mother saying, "Do you so by cute, do you mean he is handsome or do you mean that he's like says cute things and is funny and and that's why you like him. And it was so obvious that it was like, say, say the second one, say the second one. <laughs> so I said the second one. And uh, she said, okay, well, that's fine. Boys don't call other boys cute. So just moving forward, that's just not a thing. And, and I remember the world sort of slowly lurching back to life and like, you, yeah. know, if, you know, bacon being eaten, slow, whatever. Like everything, <laughs> you know, became normal again. But for a moment I was like, just by expressing that one thing, I made everything stop. Right. And I don't ever want to feel that way again. Yeah. You know, that is something I, I want to avoid forever. Dave's family wasn't homophobic, but they weren't exactly waving rainbow flags either. Out in the neighborhood, the message was very clear. The culture has a, has, it, it does a, a thorough job of making you feel terrible about yourself. I mean, it, it is, it is everywhere. It is baked into everything. It is the subtext of every interaction among boys it is the go-to insult mm-hmm. um you know now there are slowly starting to be gay characters and things but for many many years any gay character that you saw in fiction which was the only place where you could find gay people were they were creeps or they were villains or they were the butt of the joke um it it's you just do not get an opportunity to be fully human right uh, if a boy wasn't sufficiently male, right? There were a couple boys in the subdivision who were a little bit older who weren't sufficiently male. And I was afraid of them because, you know, because you're taught to think that they're less than human. But when when the older kids would talk about them, it would just they would just do the limp wrist and that mm. was it. That was all those kids got to be was gay, mm-hmm. right? And they were just dismissed. They didn't get to play kick the can. They didn't get to come around or do anything. It was just they were the gay kid and they were left alone. And that was death. That the idea of that was death to me. Mm-hmm. You know, just to to not have the opportunity to be anything else. Right, because you're super social, also. Yes, I am. You know, and you yeah. want to be around. Yeah, the people. Yeah, it's it is. I mean, I I look back now, and it, and it is. It is astonishing that, like, people, the gay men, especially. I mean, I, queer people of all stripes have a very difficult. I can only speak to my own experience, but. To have grown up in the 80s where, you know, you have no peers, you are taught to hate and fear yourself. If there is anybody else around you who is like you, you are taught to hate and fear them. So you, you there's a part of you that's drawn to them, but also a part that you feel, you they repel you. Mm-hmm. Um, you have no role models because no older gay people exist because generations and generations were not able to live openly. Um, the ones that you might know about are the butt of a joke. 
the the generations ahead, the generation immediately ahead of of us died on mass, and that became the butt of many jokes. All right, AIDS. Yeah, it's it's crazy. Um, it's it it is it is in like to be able to get out of bed in the morning when you think about it is like, right. I that shit takes work. It is important for people of privilege to think about what it feels like to not have privilege, to be told that who you are, who you did not choose to be, is inherently bad. If you're non-white, if you're gay, if you're female, society tells you that you're not as good. It just does. That can make good mental health bad, and it can make a problem much worse. I asked Dave how much of the issues he faced later in life is connected to the homophobia he faced earlier. A lot of it? Yeah. I you know, it's par- it's partially that. It's partially being told and and being told in kind I mean directly from a lot of uh of of corners, but indirectly from everywhere that you don't measure up. And if you, you know, and you and there's no one to talk to about it. That that is that's terrifying and and taxing. But for in my case, Having an incredible desire to like be a good boy mm-hmm. and make my family proud of me and be what I thought you thought a good boy was, um, and having like a, a brain that can process very quickly, I think you know there's there's the the anger and the and the exhaustion of of being made to feel less than, and then there's just like working like a mother to keep just to try to appear normal, Right. That, that becomes kind of taxing. For Dave, depression was an issue, but he describes it as dysthymic depression. That's where there are no dramatic crashes, just a low buzz of depression that is persistent. And on top of that, he had this message that as a gay person, still closeted, he was bad. And his anxiety gets worse, and he carries all this with him to college at Holy Cross in Massachusetts. I remember... Um, having my first panic attack uh, in my just before my senior year of college, and I was alone. I was driving a car, and and I felt l- like I just felt like my brain was spiraling out, like spinning out of control. Um, just the gears were were like giving off sparks, and I had to pull over and catch my breath. I was sweating. I was crying. I, I, I could I could barely breathe, and. At, at the time, I didn't tell anybody because here were my two things. First of all, I thought I had some sort of out-of-control brain AIDS because it was like mm-hmm. 1993 and I had like touched a dick. Um, and But then also I had like done ecstasy once. So I thought maybe this was some sort of right. like acid flashback but for ecstasy, I guess. Right. And uh, so I didn't tell anybody about it. But you're already tying it to your own behavior. Oh, totally. Yeah. This is all I made, my fault. I willed it and yeah. it's and it will bring shame upon my family if I tell anybody. Right. So I mean in retrospect, you know, it was just before my senior year of college. I was just about to come out to my family. I was about to graduate into a world where I didn't know where I fit in. It makes sense that I would like need to pull a car over. Sure. But at the time it was just like, no, it's it's your foolish You were alone with your, your thoughts behind ways. the wheels. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's what it was. Yeah. Um, and, and in the years afterwards, the defenses that I had set up and the mental processes that I had set up just to like survive, 
um, it, it like they began to kind of turn on me a little bit. All right. So we know modern Dave deals with depression and ADHD. We know young Dave developed a self-loathing from societal homophobia and had panic attacks. And that is, unfortunately, common among young people. What's not so common? Suddenly becoming a star on MTV. That's after the break. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by health partners and by MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma surrounding mental illnesses. Not just depression, all kinds of mental illnesses. We enjoy having some laughs on this show. It's a way of dealing with depression, maybe demystifying depression a little bit, make it not so scary. But let's not kid ourselves. It's serious. The good news is that people can and do recover. They get help. And that's why we need to make it okay to talk openly. It can be an awkward conversation, yes, but makeitok.org is full of information you can use. What to say, what not to say, and stories from people who tell you what it's like to live with depression, anxiety, and other mental illnesses. Go to makeitok.org where you can take the pledge to make it okay. Thank you so much to Health Partners and to Make It Okay for joining us in fighting stigma so we can all get better. Let's put this one here this time. Is depression funny? Depressed people are funny for the same reason Canadians are funny Uh and gay people are funny. You're not invited to the party or for some reason you're not at the party. So you have nothing to do but make jokes about it. Back with Dave Holmes. By the way, he recently wrote for Esquire about the experience of being a joke writer for a gay porn awards show. It gets very lewd, but it's funny as hell. It's online. Go check it out if you dare. Dave and I were talking about the diagnosis of ADHD that he received shortly before the interview. And I feel like we're making some connections to the rest of his life which included a series of realizations that he wasn't like other people, that when he tried to just be himself, that was bad. There's a lot of anxiety and fear going into that. And with all that writing on him, he gets out of college and he moves to New York City. Working in advertising. Yes. Not especially great at it. No, (laughs) very bad. Unable to accomplish even the simplest of tasks. I was not. I was Actively not. I was very good at the going out and having lunch and dinner part. Yeah. Uh, but the actual, you know, doing the spreadsheets and filing the things. Right. Real not good. Right. Because the advertising industry isn't just a bunch of people sitting in a room coming up with ideas. No, no it's not 30-something. <laughs> it's an industry. I know that uh, for a fact now. As you're kind of uh, staggering through relationships and bar scenes and advertising, how's your mental health through all this? Not great. Yeah. Not great. Um, Getting worse? Getting pretty bad. Yeah. Yeah. And what is acceptable for a college student, like even a college student in a a Catholic school where people are pretty normal. um, Holy Cross. Holy Cross, yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, it's still, you can still, you know, get drunk and cry. (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) You're a college student. It's kind of accepted of you. You got to, there are only certain people you can tell about it, but... Um, but in the real world, it's like, you kind of have to pull it together. Like you have to be at work at nine in the morning every day. Yeah. Like it's not cool if you're late. Right. And if, you know, and if you are having a panic attack, it doesn't matter. You have to, you have to get the shit done. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it was not getting better, but also I was, I think 
compounding it by punishing myself for not being better at, at just day-to-day life. I don't think I understood. Punishing yourself how? Um, just telling myself that I was bad or weak or lazy or, or self-indulgent or whatever. Just, you know, I should be a good boy and, like, put my nose to the grindstone and get the work done. So here's Dave, just barely out as gay, prone to depression and panic attacks, failing at his job. And he learns that MTV is doing an open call for a new VJ. It's a reality show kind of thing that they're running. And this, he thinks, this will solve all my problems. Because depressed people are always looking for something magical to solve all their problems. I took off work. Um, it was, uh, the day after Easter, 98. And, uh, and I, uh, I took a taxi to 1515 Broadway at like quarter to four in the morning because I wanted to get there early. It was 168th in line. And I went and I, and I, uh, and I, you know, they put you through your open call paces, right? right. Uh, you read a cue card, you answer some questions about yourself, you throw to a imaginary video, that kind of thing. This was before American Idol kind it, of it was. did the same format yes. of like, everyone wants to do it, we're going to narrow it down. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I, I remember at the time, like walking in and just being like, I'm, this is where I'm going to be, by hook or by crook, I'm going to be here. I, it probably won't be on air, but maybe I'll get a writing job, maybe I'll get mm. a, a production assistant job. Like, this is... This will play to my strengths more than advertising did. I remember watching that. And, really? And, and yeah, yeah. And, and uh, like as a flipping through the dial kind of thing, I wasn't watching a lot of MTV at the time. Sure. But I remember watching it because I'm like, here is, and, and the guy who ended up getting first place, yeah. Jesse Camp. Yes. Um, a wild character. Yes. With uh, unique vocal inflection. Sure. Sure. Um, just a, a memorable person. And I, and I just thought it was so funny. Like, here's this wild-looking guy possibly playing a character, possibly doing an affect next to a guy named Dave. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I remember yeah. thinking that. And, like, you know, you you were you weighed a little bit more at the time. Sure. But you had, like, a normal guy haircut. Uh-huh. And I'm like, oh, I'm so rooting for the normal guy named uh-huh. Dave. Thank you. <laughs> But but it's, but like you didn't, and you write about this in the book, you didn't look like a lot of the other people who were lining up. You had six or seven years on them easy. You were older than than everybody. Yeah. (laughs) It was weird that I was there. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Uh, The first show that I did, like part of the opening uh, credit sequence was a, a shot that they had done like down the audition line. And it truly is just like, a million, you know, beautiful 19-year-olds. Right. And then Dave. And then Like, Dave. in the middle of it. Right. And, uh, and it's like, looking back, and I blew off a friend's wedding to, to do the finals. Oh, wow. And, like, just all, all, the whole thing was so, I, I remember, th- like, thinking it's weird that I'm here, but also thinking, like, do not punish yourself for that. You do not have time for that. Get this right. job. Get right. this job or at least get a job. Like, get ingratiate yourself in some way that they bring you back and hire you in some capacity. For the life of me, I can't find any clip online of Dave coming in second to Jesse Camp at this contest. Best I could do is this one where Dave and Jesse promote the Wanna Be a VJ2 contest the next year. So when you listen to this, Dave's the one who is coherent. So watch all the Wanna Be a VJ2 specials next week during TRL as we whittle down a cast of thousands into five semifinalists who are going to be competing 
Saturday, April 17th, for $25,000, a Kia Sportage and a spot with us as a VJ on MTV. Jesse's got one of our hopefuls right here. Hey, sweetheart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, what was it? What's it like out here, man? Tell me about it. To this day, people ask Dave about Jesse all the time. Jesse made a few appearances on MTV and was gone. Dave, the runner-up, got hired to be an on-air personality and spent four and a half years there. It was all great. Yeah. But I had two blissful years where I was, the adrenaline of finally finding my place in the world was so strong. And it hit me like it was coursing through my body at all times. And I was like, I cannot, I cannot believe this is my life. It truly was like, I I was distracted into happiness. <laughs> but I but I remember because you couldn't spin in your own mind. You weren't behind the wheel of that car. Anymore. Right. Yeah. I was just trying to keep up. But I was trying to keep up with something I loved, yeah. you know. Um and and I and I felt like this like th- I need to be here. When I when I would do a show, I would walk away from it and be like not think I was the best in the world at doing it, but like knowing that only I could have done that thing that way, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, Like, there's a reason why I'm here. And there's a reason why I love the things that I love, because they brought me here. But I I also remember, after having been there for a couple years, I was was doing a show. I was doing a show called Say What Karaoke. It was a Monday through Friday, half hour, like, like a, you know, you would do a karaoke version of, you know, Blink-182 song or whatever. And, and we would do, like, seven of them a day. And, uh, and like, so we'd get a whole season done in a week. And it was great because I was just constantly doing my thing. I remember being in like in my dressing room between, let's say, show four and five of the day. And a voice in my head saying, you're going to go back out on that stage and start crying. Wow. Yeah. And like I'd had panic, like gone down panic spirals or anxiety spirals about certain things. Never that specific one. And never in that specific way, but it was like, you're like, this is all going to end today. Like you're going to go out there and mess this up permanently on camera today. Wow. And, and I, rationally, I was like, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. I don't do that. I am not like, even if I do cry or whatever, I can pull it together. But there was like this emotional, just self-destructive part of my brain that was like, nope. Today, today's the day. This ends today. And I wrestled with that for years after. I, I think it was just... What happened on that show when, when you went back out? Kill, I, I was, it was great. Yeah. It was fun. And it's always been fun. And I've always had that voice, and it's never happened. It's just like this cog that's spinning out of control in my brain. Uh, and I don't know whether it's like, you know, you got too much. Yeah. Or... Um, you haven't suffered enough for this or something. I don't know what it is. Imposter syndrome. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. But it is It is an out of control, loose voice in my, in my, I don't know if it's my brain, but somewhere in my, in my person that tells me that. Like, and it, it's not always cry. It's like, you're going to go out there and, and wet your pants or you're going to, you know, you're going to hit somebody or whatever just like some some something is going to happen where you just lose control yeah and it'll be on camera and it'll haunt you until the day you die do you ever think about um if you if you had missed your alarm 
that morning, mm-hmm. not gone to the, the MTV audition. Yeah. Or if, you know, the person doing the initial screening hadn't liked their blueberry muffin that morning. Right. And was a little more, oh, you yeah. know, just, yeah. If like, I was okay. at Station 7 instead of Station 12. Yeah. 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 Do you ever think about, like, what your mind would be like, what your life would be like now yeah. if it didn't have that injected into it? All the time. And I have no idea. Yeah. I truly have no idea. I think... Yeah, I don't know. I think I saw uh, um, a part of the world that I had not exposed myself to in that day. And I, I like to think that I would have pushed toward it in, in some way. Yeah. Um, perhaps my improv career would have taken off um, as, you know, you know how they do. You know, all those big improv celebrities all out there. All of those big improv <laughs> stars. Uh, I don't, I truly don't know. But yeah, I probably would have kept trying to keep an, uh, an advertising career going or, yeah. or something. I don't know. Ultimately, the MTV gig ended. It's not a job for life kind of place. And since then, Dave's been doing a million things, including trying to manage his depression through therapy and getting tested for ADHD. I wonder if, um, in your case, if the the multiple jobs is uh, is a result of the ADHD or is it more of a self-image thing? Probably both. Yeah. And then also probably, you know, I w- I'll do the thing for $75 because I often need $75. <laughs> right. Do you know what I mean? Like, it beats not having that $75. Exactly. Exactly. So you're diagnosed now with ADHD. Yeah. Uh, are you being treated for it? Well, n- not yet, and I don't know how. I don't know how I want to do that because there, there is the you know there's the uh, ADHD, and then there, and then there is the you know knowing what I know from having done all this testing about like the the speed with which my brain processes things. Knowing that about myself is really helpful. Mm-hmm. Knowing that it's if I begin to spiral into a panic attack, it I kind of understand a little bit about where that comes from, and I. I can talk myself down from it a little bit better, I think. Um, so I'm still trying to figure out exactly how I want to handle treatment. I, I, again, pills freak me out. Um, I, I, I got that prescription for Adderall, and I'm afraid to take them. They've been sitting in my medicine cabinet for five years now. <laughs> and in giant letters, it says amphetamine, right? Which yeah. is like, I don't want to mess with that, right? <laughs> Um, so a lot of people find that medicine does help. I guess they do. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, obviously they must. Adderall is commonly prescribed for ADHD and narcolepsy. It uses amphetamine molecules to increase productivity of norepinephrine and dopamine used as prescribed. A lot of patients respond well. It can cause euphoria, increased cognitive control, changes in desire for sex, and it can alter sleep patterns. Take too much, you're looking at decreased cognitive control, possible psychosis, and loss of muscle control. It's generally not a good idea to take five-year-old meds. Uh, and I, I, you know, I guess, I don't know, at some point maybe I'll give it a whirl, but I, you know, but I also know people who have taken it, let us say, off-label, who have, yes. uh, who have uh, gone off the deep end a little bit, and that's frightening to me. Um, so yeah, I'm not I'm not really sure. I mean, it's something that I now work with with my therapist. He saw the full readout of the mm-hmm. the testing and all that kind of thing. Um, I think honestly, a lot um, knowing that I am a person with a desire to be accepted, with a 
with a mind that processes things quickly and and with a vivid imagination, mm-hmm. knowing those things about myself, I am able to forgive myself for crazy anxiety attacks and and maybe put them in their place a little bit and understand where they come from. Seems like a a brain speed control issue. It is. Like you've it got is. to you've got to figure out where the accelerator is and where the brake is. Exactly. On this car exactly. named Dave hurtling down the highway. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but just even just speaking that is is it goes a long way toward toward helping. Well, you 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 can know, I mean, this is what a lot of like cognitive behavioral therapy is all about is figuring out, oh, my brain wants to go to this place I don't want it to. Yeah. Let me figure out what I can do before it gets there. Yeah. You know, yeah. Or, or this keeps happening. Let's figure out why. Right. You know, what dug that canal. Right. <laughs> Let's right. go there. It's funny. I, and I, I, I'm, she was just talking about it on a podcast. So I, I don't think I'm telling tales out of school, but Emily Heller, um, stand up sure. comedian was also recently diagnosed with uh, with ADHD and uh, and she talked about it on this podcast and I reached out uh, on Twitter and I was like hey me too and so we've so she said what's like what what what's your you know what are you gonna do what are you doing for treatment and I said right now my thing is saying I have ADHD like that's mm-hmm. that is kind of and she was like you know what that's actually really helpful just yeah. know just having a name for what it is and just taking a breath that and lists very helpful yeah. And yeah. then, you know, we'll, I, I'll figure out some sort of real, you know, um, treatment option at some point. So what is Dave Holmes doing to address his mental health issues? Well, he's thinking a lot and podcasting. So now I do a podcast called Homophilia, where we talk to LGBT people about their lives and, and all that kind of thing. And we're, we're doing, uh, we've done a spinoff where we're talking to experts in LGBT health issues um, and, and social issues and, and that kind of thing. And ta- I mean, I have my own therapy, right? But talk, talking to a psychotherapist about all of, of the people that they have seen and the things that, that are, that he finds that they have in common, the, the exhaustion that comes from a lifetime of like hypervigilance and, mm-hmm. and, and the anger that, that sort of comes from that, that you never really do anything with that you tend to kind of turn inward. Um, I have, I have found that general thing, he, hearing about that generally has been in 45 minutes has been almost as helpful to me as a decade of therapy. Mm. You know, I feel I still don't give enough weight to my own feelings. I don't mm. think, but like hearing somebody say that they are valid because other people have felt them somehow, I, somehow that is more helpful to yeah. Me. So there's still a part of me that's like judging my own feelings by somebody else's yardstick. What do you know now about mental health that you wish you knew a long time ago? Um, that it is a thing that you are always engaging with, whether you know it or not. You're either actively engaging with it or you're passively engaging with it. I know people who um, who pretend that they don't have psychological hangups, but they act them out in ways that become other people's problems. Mm. Um, you're fighting with your mental health at all times, whether you know it or not. So um, it is best to actively do it and own it and you know, take care of yourself and apologize when you get things wrong and work towards getting better because there's no, there's no shame in uh, 
addressing it or, or in acknowledging poor mental health. You're making a choice on how you deal with it. Even, right. even if you're choosing to ignore it, that's still a choice. It's still a choice. It's yeah. still a choice. Somebody's going to have to put up with your mental problems. Yeah. <laughs> so it might as well be you. On our next episode, from Radiolab and Invisibilia, Lulu Miller. She used the tried-and-true depression treatment of getting obsessed with a 19th-century ichthyologist. I got to the point where I was like requesting this one arcane text from a science library, and like even the librarians started getting concerned about my mental health. They were like, <laughs> "You're back again!" Like, and I'm like, "You are a fish science library, but you th-. like it was like it was bad." Yeah, um, even among but, fish librarians, this is this is dismaying. Like at first, they're dazzled. Someone's there, and want, and then they're like, "Is she okay? She's back." Dave Holmes can be found on Twitter at Dave Holmes. He's not the Dave Holmes who testified at the impeachment hearings. That's a different Dave Holmes. The Hilarious World of Depression is a production of American Public Media. Our production squadron for this episode includes Chrissy Pease, Christina Lopez, Phyllis Fletcher, Jessen Duller, Corey Shreppel, and Eric Romani. Our theme song was written and performed by Rhett Miller. If you need help, confidential help is available at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255. It's free 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 1-800-273-8255. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by Health Partners and MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma around mental illnesses. MakeItOK.org has information that can help you and your loved ones. Starting that conversation can be awkward, but Make It OK has tips on what to say or not to say. It has stories of hope from people who have been there. You can take the pledge to Make It OK at MakeItOK.org. HilariousWorld.org is our web home. We're also on Twitter, and come visit us on Facebook by searching either for the name of the show or for Thwadballs. I'm John Moe. Bye now. This great big smile is just for show What if I was to tell you this is just grease paint Would you say I'm a hopeless case Say it ain't so Would you say I'm a sad clown Tell me something I don't know Say I'm a sad clown Tell me something I don't know